almost, almost, I don't like to sing anymore without the djembe. I mean, I love, I love, the, I love the percussion. It's great. A couple years ago, an American author, his name is Bruce Wilkerson, he wrote a book entitled The Dream Giver. Anybody read this book? It wasn't a, big, uh, wasn't a real big seller, but, uh, but I read it. And uh, the, gr- the dream giver, of course, is God. And He's anim- animating His people to live, to, to give up or to turn, their, turn their backs on their small dreams that they might embrace uh, the God-sized dreams that He has for His people. Wilkerson opens the book with a parable. It's the story about a nobody named Ordinary who lived in the land of Familiar. So bear with me just for a few minutes. I'm going to read this short parable to you. And I want you to to see if you recognize yourself here or someone you may know. Let's let's, uh, bear with me. It's It's not too long. I'm just going to have to read to you. So bear with me for a few minutes. Not long ago and not far away, a nobody named Ordinary lived in the land of familiar. Every day was pretty much the same for ordinary. In the mornings, he got up and went to his usual job. After work, he ate dinner and then always sat back in his recliner and watched the box that mesmerized most nobodies on most nights. For the most part, not much happened in familiar that hadn't happened before. Ordinary thought he was content. He found the routine reliable. He liked blending in with the crowd And mostly he wanted only what he had, until one day, Ordinary noticed a small, nagging feeling that something big was missing from his life. Or maybe the feeling was that he was missing from something big. He wasn't really sure. The little feeling grew, and even though nobody's in familiar didn't generally expect the unexpected, Ordinary began to wish for it. Ordinary shared his feelings with best friend. Best friend was concerned and said, You know as well as I do that nobodies who pursue big dreams always leave familiar for a journey that is anything but sensible and safe. Then best friend said, Why leave familiar? It's so comfortable here. I really like that line. Ordinary began to feel that something big was missing from his life, or was it that he was missing from something big? I think we talked a lot about this last week as we were together. You know, Jesus just says those two beautiful, startling words to his people. He says, Follow me. Jesus says, Follow me. And it's an amazing thing. He invites ordinary nobodies to leave all that is familiar and to walk with Him. If you've ever thought about it more than 120 seconds, you realize that this invitation from the living God is breathtaking for two different reasons. The first being that, uh, shall we call it the fear factor. Jesus is always going to call you to a place that you're uncomfortable in in the flesh. It's really quite unnatural to walk with the living God. It's uncomfortable. Many of you could give testimony to this. It's uncharted territory for the natural man. Everything in your natural being says, no, I don't want to take that risk. I want to stay where it's comfortable, where it's easy, where I can control things, where I understand things. 
It's a lot easier to blend in with the crowd and conform with the world. It's, it's a lot simpler to just live a small life, again, that you can manage and control. It's a lot less risky than walking with God. The second reason that this is a breathtaking invitation, we'll call it the exhilaration factor. It's just uh, the fact that this is God. This is God. This is I Am. This is Elohim. This is Jehovah. This is Jesus Christ inviting us to walk with Him. He's the beautiful, infinite, eternal, awesome God. And He says, hey, you ordinary nobody, why don't you go with Me? Follow Me! This is what the living God says to ordinary nobodies. Just like me. Just like you. It's a breathtaking thought that He's invited us to go with Him. And every Christian who has genuinely set off with Jesus has felt this tension, this desire to hold back and conform to the ways of the world, and this desire to go and be with Him. Because He's simply so compelling. He's simply so beautiful. I've shared this with you before. Some, uh, some years ago, I think, uh, there's a scene from Franco Zeffirelli's uh, film entitled Jesus of Nazareth. Has any, have any of you ever seen the movie Jesus of Nazareth? In my view... You can't really depict the life of Christ. You really can't do it justice. But it's about the best attempt I think I've ever seen. And there's a scene in that, in that movie where we see this tension in Peter. And Jesus had come to Peter's hometown and he spent a day and a night and Jesus had performed a miracle or two and he, and he, uh, he had shared some teaching uh, in the town. and Peter was really moved by it. And the next day, Jesus and His disciples, they piled into Peter's boat. They went across the Sea of Galilee, right? And as all the disciples were piling out, Matthew being the last, Peter was watching this. Matthew jumps out of the boat. He turns and he looks at Peter. Their eyes meet just for a moment. And then Matthew goes with Jesus. And Peter's standing there on his boat. I love this scene. Some of you can relate to this scene. I know about this scene personally. And he's, look, he's looking at Jesus, and then he looks at his boat. And then he looks at Jesus, and then he looks at his boat. And he's weighing it out, right? He's trying to decide. Am I going to go with Christ, or am I going to stay here and do the reasonable and responsible and prudent thing? As far as what the world has to say. Am I going to go with Jesus or am I going to play it safe? Am I going to stay with my small dreams or am I going to dream the dream that God has dreamed for me? We talked a lot about this last week. There were 101 reasons for Peter to stay on that boat. <laughs> there was 101 reasons not to follow Christ. You know, we talked about it a lot in here. When I say follow Christ, I'm not talking about being merely religious. I'm not talking about merely attending church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about believing and following Him in a radical way out in the world. Where everyone in your orbit, they know you're a Christian. They can tell. They can tell you're a Christian by the way you, by the way you live. By the way you live. And Peter's trying to decide, what is he going to do? He looks at Jesus. He looks at his boat one more time. And then he finally he jumps off the boat. He turns and says something to who is presumably his son. He says, take her back to Capernaum. And Peter goes off with Jesus Christ. 
I think we've all been in that position. At least all the true believers in this room, I think, have been in that position with the Lord. As we've seen in our verse-by-verse look at Philippians, the Apostle Paul had discarded his small dreams for God-sized dreams. What was Paul's dream? We talked about it last week. Paul wanted to be, anybody remember? He just wanted to be a perfect Jew. Right? We're going to talk about that, I think, as we get over into Philippians chapter 3. Paul just wanted to be the perfect Jew. He wanted to be a big man at the temple. He wanted his picture on the cover of Pharisee Illustrated. That's what he wanted. But on that, on that road to Damascus, that day that Jesus invaded his life, all those small dreams went out the door, and all he wanted was to go with Christ. That's all he wanted. God-sized dreams. No more small dreams for Paul. Just God-sized dreams. Not, the, you know, not some middle-of-the-road kind of way, but radically go with Christ. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of, in, of you in here are radically following Christ? No reservation, no reserves, no excuses. I'm going to radically obey Him in my daily life, in my work, at my school, in all that I do. I live for the glory of Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain, as we've, as we've been talking about. It's a never-look-back, sold-out kind of life. This is the kind of Christianity that you read about in the New Testament. We've talked about it a lot. It's not simply brain-dead, heart-dead church attendance. And Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He understood. We've talked a lot about it. It's not about Paul. Paul understands it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says uh, to live is to be used of Christ. To die is to be with Christ. It's all about Jesus, right? Is that how it is with you? Is that how it is with you in Christ? Paul says, if I live, I live to please my awesome God. Paul says, if I die, I go to be with my awesome God. (laughs) It's a win-win situation. It's always a win-win situation for the Christian. So tonight, Paul begins to directly exhort the Philippians. In the first 26 verses of Philippians chapter 1, it's, it's basically autobiogra- uh, autobiographical. Uh, yeah, it's about Paul. <laughs> it's autobiographical information. Basically, Paul's saying, hey, this is the situation I'm in. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier. Yes, I'm being slandered by some in the church. Yes, Caesar may cut my head off at any, at any moment, but none of this can touch the joy I have in Christ Jesus. And this is what we've been talking about for the first 26 verses. Then Paul says, verse 27, He addresses the Philippians directly. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. If you study Greek, you understand that the first word or words in a Greek sentence are put there for a reason. That's the emphatic position. That's, what, that's the main point of, of the thought. And the Holy Spirit directs Paul to begin his sentence with the word only. 
I saw one English translation render it this way. The only thing that matters. This is what Paul is saying to the Philippians. This is what he's saying to you and I. The only thing that matters is that you live a life worthy of the Gospel. This is what the, uh, the Apostle Paul is saying to us. What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel? Well, it means a thousand and one things. There's no way I can summarize it in one sermon. There's just so much that can be said. But my mind went immediately to 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. You guys remember the great verse. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. You guys remember that verse? How did Jesus walk? Again, there's more that I could say here than I have time to say. But I think we can, we can uh, condense it down to one overriding principle. You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember? And His disciples came back and they thought He hadn't eaten. And they, they wanted to get Him to eat. And they were entreating Him to eat something. And Jesus says, I have food to eat you don't know anything about. And they were confused. They were confused. They didn't know what He was talking about. And Jesus said, you remember the great text, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of My Father. That's the food of Jesus. And to accomplish... His work. Again, while there's so much that could be said here, I think it sums it up, does it not? That was His food. That was His food to do the will of the Father. What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel? It means that our food is to do the will of the Father. That's what it means. Which is to say it is our very life to do God's will. That's that's our preeminent purpose. That's why we live. That's why we breathe. Is to do the will of God. To honor Him in our lives. You remember some years ago, a lot of people were wearing these bracelets. It was WWJD bracelets. I bet some of you may have worn those. I know they're somewhat out of favor now. What did, they, what did that mean, WWJD? Anybody remember? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Well, in any given, any given situation, what would Jesus do? He would do His Father's will. Period. He, there was no debate. There was no agonizing on which course He would take. He would simply do His Father's will. That's what Jesus would do. He would do what His Father said. In short, He'd do the Word. We've been talking about it a lot in our young adult Bible study and in our men's Bible study. We're studying that great... Epistle, the book of James. James 1.22 says, Prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I love how the message paraphrases that. Eugene Peterson says, Don't just let the Word go in one ear and out the other. We are supposed to act on what we hear. Jesus acted on what the Father told Him. To do. What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel? It means we don't merely hear the Word. We don't merely talk about the Word. We do the Word. You say, Jim, you say that to us all the time. I know. I told you a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week? I don't remember. I'm here to stir you up. That's my job. 
That's why I get paid the big money. I'm here to stir you up to go out there and be a radical Christian. I want you to be a radical Christian in here, and I want you to be a radical Christian out there. Beloved, I say it to you all the time. You're a vapor on the earth. You have just a few minutes to live. We don't have time. We don't have time not to be radically going with Christ. We don't have time. We don't have time. We simply do not have the time. Eugene Peterson, that beautiful, beautiful paraphrase of James 2.17. I love this. I love this. He says, God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. Don't you love that? Yeah, it's man-made religion to simply talk about the, the words of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus, but never go do the words of Jesus. It's outrageous nonsense. Eugene Peterson says it perfectly. It's outrageous nonsense. The Holy Spirit exhorts us not to engage in outrageous nonsense, but verse 27, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Greek word translated conduct in verse 27, it carries the connotation of citizenship. The Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you be a good citizen. He's, and the Holy Spirit's not talking about being a good earthly citizen. He's talking about living out your heavenly citizenship right here, right now. Is that a reality for you, beloved? Live out your heavenly citizenship right here and right now. We talked about it last week. It was the mindset of the men and women of Hebrews 11. They confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desired a better country. That is, does anyone remember, a heavenly one. They were pointing at heaven. The whole of their life was pointing at heaven. And this is what the New Testament Christian is called to as well. That's what Paul was doing. He was pointing at heaven. Uh, to live is to lay up unfailing treasures in heaven. To die is to be in heaven. It was all about heaven. It was all about Jesus Christ. I think we talked about this in Young Adult Bible Study the last two weeks. It's about Hebrews 11.16. God says, I am not ashamed to be called their God. Those men and women of Hebrews 11, those men and women who, who, who uh, put down their small dreams, their man-sized dreams, and they went with God. You know, just ordinary nobodies put down those man-sized dreams. They heard God speak to them and they went with God. It didn't matter how risky it looked. They just went with God and God says I am not ashamed to be called their God. Beloved, I don't want I don't want God to be ashamed to, to, to be called anyone in here's God. I mean I love that. There's nothing else like that in all of Scripture. God says I'm not ashamed to be their God. They believe I am, they believe I'm good, and they go with me. Hebrews eleven six. You know, I'm always amazed. I'll ask Christians this sometimes. I mean, it's not a test or anything, so, you know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not testing you, but, but it's like, I'll ask people, I'll say, what is it that pleases God? And I almost never get this answer. <laughs> and I'll get something good, you know, like, like uh, you know, something good, something not bad. But, but what does God say? What pleases God? Hebrews 11.6. Faith. That pleases God. Are you living faith? 
Are you just living like everybody else in the world? Have you settled for the small dreams, the, the, the small man-made dreams? Or are you living those God-sized dreams by faith? Have you given yourself away to Christ? Really? That's New Testament Christianity, beloved. That is New Testament Christianity. We are to follow Him by faith. To live in a manner worthy of the Gospel is to live by faith. It's to go out into the world and live that reality. Did you notice in verse 27, the Holy Spirit says, real believers stand firm in one spirit. When I read that, I couldn't help but think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over in, in the Old Testament book of Daniel. You guys know the story, right? Nebuchadnezzar had built the, the idol, and the golden idol, and he commanded everyone to bow down. These three guys wouldn't. And he said, if, if you don't bow down, man, I, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And they all stood there together. It was a perfect illustration of what the text says. Standing firm in one spirit. They had perfect solidarity and unity. They stood there together and said, hey, you can kill us if you want to. But we're going to hold to God. We're going to do the right thing. We're not bowing to your God. Well, you know the rest of the story, right? God did an incredible deliverance for those men. The Greek word translated standing here, it literally means to stand at post in war. How many of you know, if you're a Christian tonight, how many of you know you're in a war? Not very many. Okay. A couple. Beloved, you're in a war. If, if you don't know you're in a war... Beloved, if you don't know you're in a war, you've dozed off somewhere along the way. You've dozed off somewhere along the way. We're called to, to a battle. We're called to that. I love that the Greek, there's this connotation of standing at post. You know, God has called you to stand at post. You're in Milan to stand at post. And I know, I say it to you a lot. Some of you think you're here because, well, uh, my job, my career, my business. Some of you spouses are here because your spouses work. Some of you are here because you're going to school. Some of you think that's the paramount reason you're here. Wrong. You're here to stand at post. You're here to glorify God in Milan while you're here. That's why you're here. You're here to stand with the International Church of Milan in this really, really dark place that's dominated by a false religious system. You're here to be a light with us. You're not here for anything less. If you're a child of God tonight, if you're a born-again Christian, you're not here to do anything less. Yes, you have other responsibilities. I understand that. But overarching your uh, subordinate responsibility is to stand at post and to give testimony. To give testimony to the reality and the power and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of 
Jesus Christ. Eugene Peterson says, we're, we're using our powerful God tools to smash warped philosophies and we're tearing down all those barriers erected against the truth of God. That's why we're here. Not just to do that in Italy, to be a small part of that as we partner with Italian language ministries, Keith and Debbie and, and Andrea Artioli and others. But you, when you come uh, in this church, man, I want to exhort you, when you go back home, you understand? You're standing at post. And you're at war. And you're, you're a soldier of the light. And you need to be the light. You need to be the light. Whether you're in Milan or whether you're back home. The Holy Spirit says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel by standing firm together and holding fast to God's Word. What else does He say? He says to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel. It, uh, we do this by striving together with one mind for the faith. I immediately thought of, when I read that, I immediately thought of Gideon and his 300 guys outnumbered 450 to 1. Right? They strove together with one mind for the faith. What did God do in that situation? God gave them a miraculous victory. A miraculous victory. That's conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel. It's believing, trusting, and acting on God's Word even when it looks impossible, even when it looks risky. Beloved, that's the best time to act on God's Word. I can give you personal testimony, but I don't have time. If you want to know the stories, I'll tell you later. The best time, the most powerful time to act on God's Word is when it's the most risky for you. That's the absolute best time. There's never a bad time. <laughs> There's never a bad time. But when the stakes are high, People are going to find out, and you'll find out too, what you really believe. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe God is powerful? Do I really believe God will keep His promise to me? Do I really believe God will glorify Himself in my life? Again, you're not here in Milan to just do your job and go to school or be, be a, a faithful spouse. You're here to join this little band of hopelessly outnumbered believers proclaiming the Gospel. Yes, our primary emphasis is English-speaking internationals, but again, it is one of our goals to partner with sound, biblically sound, uh, Italian language ministries. Thirdly, God says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Gospel. He says, hey, don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened. Don't be intimidated by your opponents. In other words, he says, be fearless. Be fearless, Christians. And when I read that, I thought immediately of Jehoshaphat. You remember the story, right? This great horde of Ammonites and Moabites and a whole lot of other ites are coming against, uh, coming against uh, Judah. And, 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 and Jehoshaphat, he cries out to God. He says, I don't know, Jehoshaphat says, I don't know what we're going to do. We're powerless against this horde. What does God say? God says, this fight's mine. He says, you, people, you, you guys just come out. You come, come out and face the enemy. 
You just come out and face the enemy. You remember what Jehoshaphat and the people did? They came out, they faced the enemy, and they just started singing. Do you remember? They just started singing and praising God. Do you remember what happened then? God routed all the various ites. He routed them. God said, this is my war. This is my fight. It's what Paul says to us here. We are to be fearless Christians. I'm not saying we don't struggle. I'm not saying we don't have weak times and weak moments. I'm not saying that sometimes we don't have to get on our face and cry out to God and confess our fear and ask Him to give us the courage we need to do what we know He's calling us to do. I'm not saying that we're flawless in this, but I'm saying this is the call. To be fearless. To be fearless. Does anyone believe it? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Does anyone believe that? Are you living like you believe it? Amen. God is for His people. He expects His people to live like they believe He's for them. God is for His people. And you know that great verse, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord, they move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. I love how the Holy Spirit says that here. He says, in essence, your fearlessness is a sign to the whole world that your God is God. And your God can be trusted. I love that. Did you notice the Holy Spirit says that when we live out our faith and our trust in God, it testifies to our salvation and the damnation of those who reject Jesus Christ. When you fearlessly live out your faith, it is a testimony to the reality of your salvation and to the damnation of all of those who reject Christ Jesus. So the Holy Spirit says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel, standing firm in the Spirit, striving together in unity with one mind, and fearlessly living out your faith. Verse 29 and 30, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in Me and now here to be. In me, We've talked about this many times. Sometimes God chooses to deliver His people and sometimes God chooses not to deliver His people and they suffer persecution for His name's sake. You know, many Christians get in a knot about this. There's so much false and, and erroneous teaching in the modern church. Many think Christians should never suffer. If you, if you have average comprehension skills and you read your Bible, you understand that is not the case. Many times Christians will suffer merely because they're Christians. In addition to just all the suffering that is connected with living in a fallen world. Yeah, a prosperity preachers never going to preach this text. The name it and claim it bunch, they're never going to preach this text. Verse 29. But the Spirit says, what does He say about suffering? I surveyed every mainline English translation on this verse and the predominant word I saw over and over and over again, you're not going to like it probably, is the word privilege. Privilege. Verse 29. It is a privilege. 
to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And that may be shocking to some of you. This is what the Scripture says. You know, it's, at, it's Acts 5.41. It's Peter and John and some of the other apostles. You remember, they were flogged for preaching Christ. And you remember what they said when, they got, when, they were, when, when, when that was over? I'll read it to you so I don't get it wrong. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. I know that many in the modern church, you start talking about obedience that puts us in a risky situation that could end up in persecution. And it's like, yeah, people don't get that. Many people in the modern church don't get that anymore. And in the West, praise God, in the West, we don't really have much persecution in a violent way, but there'll still be persecution in your relationships. You may have discovered persecution um, in, your, uh, in your career. Some of you may have persecution in your own family. It's not a matter of if you will suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. You will suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Word of God says. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You remember, you remember what uh, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. All. All will be persecuted. If you're, if you're a real Christian, if you're born again, if you're really radically going with Christ, there will be some point in your life where you will be persecuted for His name sake. If we've never encountered any persecution because of our faith, it might well be that we are not living our faith in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Beloved. If we're really conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel, we will in some manner and to some degree encounter persecution. And I want to cover this and I'm finished. I've said this to you many times, but it's an important point. Sometimes God puts His miraculous power on display and He delivers His people. But sometimes God puts His compelling beauty on display and He sustains His people through the trial. Sometimes God miraculously delivers His people and His raw power is on display. But other times, God in His omniscient wisdom, He allows His people to go through the trial and He proves Himself to be sufficient in it. And the unbelieving world sees it. This is why the Father lets His adopted children be martyred in the world. Unbelievers will see it. And many will be saved by the blood of the martyrs. And so many in the West, in the modern church, they shrink back from any kind of risk. I'm trying to stir you up. <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to start saying that to you every week. I'm trying to stir you up. Real faith doesn't demand a deliverance from God in the trial. Real faith is utterly satisfied with God in the trial. Deliverance or no deliverance. This is biblical Christianity. Real faith doesn't say, if God loved me, He'd get me out of this. Real faith says, I treasure God whether He gets me out of this or not. That's biblical faith. That's born-again faith. 
I was reading John Piper this week and he said something that really intrigued me. I really kind of went off on this thought. I really like this thought. I never thought about this before. Yes, there's actually something that John Piper has written that I hadn't read yet. I know you, you probably find that hard to believe. But he was talking about he was talking about the stories and the ballads and the tales that you and I will be talking about in the new heaven and the new earth. And I've never thought about this. You know, we'll be sitting around maybe a, a tree in, in the new earth, some beautiful landscape, and we'll be sitting around talking. And we're going to be talking about how awesome our God was and what He did, His redemption of His people, and how He used ordinary nobodies in that redemption. I love that thought. I love that thought. We're talking about Abraham and Moses. We're talking about Rahab and Sarah. We'll be talking about Calvin and Keith and Debbie and Deanne. People who really believed and really obeyed. These great tales will be told in the new heaven and the new earth. I love, I love that thought. I love that thought. These great stories will be remembered about ordinary nobodies who turned their backs on small dreams and embraced God's dreams. Ordinary nobodies who turn, turned their backs on easy, comfortable, conventional, familiar lives and they went with God. Ordinary nobodies who have truly fallen in love with Christ and will not settle for anything less than to radically walk with Him. Ordinary nobodies who are willing to do hard, selfless, sacrificial things for the glory of Jesus. Ordinary nobodies who not only don't shrink back from Philippians 1.21, they get Philippians 1.21, they love Philippians 1.21, and they live Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's real Christianity, beloved. And I'm here to stir you up. I've got a long way to go personally. I know some of you guys may be really spiritual. You may be way out in front. But I've got a long way to go. But God stirs me up every week as I study His Word. And He stirs me up. And He convicts me. And He challenges me. And that's what I want to communicate to you. I don't want you to waste this week. I want you to redeem the week. I want you to redeem the week for the glory of Christ. Share the Gospel. Do the hard thing. Love someone sacrificially. Do a random act of, of kindness for no reason other than the fact you're loving the body. Love each other. Serve each other. Share the truth. Give to the church. Things that have eternal value. Do them. This week. Don't put them off. Don't put them off. I want to challenge every one of you to be ordinary nobodies who live their faith huge. Who live their faith huge for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I, it's so awesome. <laughs> You're so awesome. This invitation is so awesome. Oh God, I, I pray You forgive us when we take, when we take this com 
compellingly beautiful Gospel for granted. When we go days, weeks, or months and not literally rejoice from the depths of our heart at all, at all that You are and all that You've done. Forgive us, Father, that we've not been good stewards of our time. Forgive us that we've settled for small dreams. Forgive us that we tend to gravitate toward the things that are easy, the things that are familiar, the things that are manageable. Father, give us a new call. Every one of us in here, give us a new call, Father. I pray. A new call to go with Jesus. And when we leave tonight, we'll be serious about praying that through and finding out exactly what it is You've called us here in Milan to do. Father, that we might conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of such a worthy Savior. Such a worthy Gospel. Such a worthy God. Lord, convict our hearts. And then encourage us by the power of Your Spirit that we would be standing firm. That we would be striving together in unity. And Father, that we'd be fearless Christians. We'd not shrink back. We would embrace and love and live Philippians 1.21 to die is Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Father, we want to live it. Give us the faith to live it, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.